Всім добрий вечір. Всі ми тут. On behalf of the brave. We have freedom. Give us wings to protect it. Наші військові тут, громадяни суспільства тут, всі ми тут захищаємо нашу незалежність, нашу державу. Так буде і далі. Слава нашим захисникам, слава нашим захисницям. Слава Україні! Good evening, afternoon, or good morning, wherever you're tuning in from. Welcome to Tochni. Tochni is a podcast on Spotify, which goes out live as a Twitter space, and you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. We also broadcast an interview series called Tochni Talks, which has had amongst its most recent interviewees uh, Sergei Sumleni, Dr. Mario Gili, and Michael Weiss. As you, you'll know here at Tochny, we get behind the stories on Ukraine's fight for its survival and liberation, so it gives me great pleasure to say that we are again privileged to be joined by US veteran and sapper Charles Rye, who is going to take us through a topic which I think it's fair to say can be a bit of a hot potato, but one which is worth bearing in mind for Ukraine and its allies should we see a major offensive anytime soon. We also have the excellent company of Ben, who will deliver the latest economic news with typical Parnassian flourish. So, if you have a question on any of the topics Ben or Charles detail, please feel free to request the mic anytime. Please also retweet the space if you can, and whilst you do, I'd be grateful if you could add a reminder in your calendar before you go to work tomorrow morning to make sure that this retweet is accompanied by an email to your elected representatives. Because in my small part of the world, we have local elections coming up. And you know what this means. At this time of the year, prospective candidates and their advocates sometimes try to get away with stuffing campaign leaflets through letterboxes before making a quick escape. So no, <laughs> politics is too serious a matter to be left to the politicians, as a rather famous French chap from the 20th century once said. So that conversation on Ukraine, what it needs, why it needs the specific weaponry President Zelensky has been requesting, is a conversation with our local politicians that Ukrainians always depend on us to have, whatever country we're in. With that being said, it gives me great pleasure to uh, to welcome Charles um, up for our military segment. So Charles, at the beginning of the full-scale invasion in February last year, this war involved two large armies with similar-looking weaponry. And um, we, we see Russians firing on their own troops and on their own cities on a regular basis, but this is a challenge both sides will face. Ukraine will face, and given that potentially thousands of Ukrainian soldiers might lose their lives in a future liberation of the rest of its occupied territories, it's an issue which Ukraine's allies need to prepare themselves for. Friendly fire has always been a problem for armed forces, could you perhaps illustrate its importance for us? Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Um, yeah, as you know, you know, I like, I find it useful for people to to get an understanding of the situation in Ukraine to understand kind of the minutia of of combat and 
as much as possible of what it actually looks like and some of the minor things that we we don't get a chance to see in in the headlines because um, it's not a, luckily it's not an experience that most people have to have. So today, kind of inspired by by Russia bombing their own city on accident, um, I thought we could look at the topic of friendly fire. Uh, it's a fr it's a topic that isn't discussed too often um, because it's not it's not often reported in the same way as successes and assaults and. And there are certainly uh, depictions of it in Hollywood, but I thought we could go today and as we're looking at an offensive coming up from the Ukrainian side, there's going to be a lot of troops on the move. There's going to be a lot of maneuver going on, um, and this will inherently bring risks of friendly fire, both um, blue on blue, uh, the Ukrainians um, inadvertently firing upon their own people, as well as, of course, on the Russian side. This war has been a particular challenge as you mentioned because not only because they're using at the beginning much of the same equipment in fact still today using the same equipment and are often equipped similarly um, but also become some of the technologies that are have been developed by western armies to try to prevent friendly fire uh, are either not available um, or cannot be used because of the different limitations um, and we can go through some of those i thought just to kind of walk through this topic step by step now uh, i've speaking with a little bit of experience here i was the the subject of a friendly fire in iraq in 2006 in ramadi my patrol was fired upon by our own observation post at the 50 caliber machine gun it wasn't a long engagement luckily but despite all of the technologies that were available at that time and the planning and the control measures, it still happens. Luckily, in my case, uh, we did not lose any critical equipment and nobody was hurt. I guess in this case, we have to think that um, that soldier on the other end of that um, browning was not the best shot. Uh, and so we all walked away, but extremely angry. So I, when we talk about friendly fire, and I'm going to bring this into the Ukrainian picture as well, the first thing that we're talking about is command and control. We're talking about the planning. And one thing that we've discussed a little bit in previous weeks is, is something called phase lines, for example. This is when a unit is on the assault and there will be a line on the map that says, do not cross this line until a certain date or time or, or some kind of contingency, some other event happens, but basically an, an, an area where you have to stop. If we look at a lot of friendly fire incidents over the last 40 years or so, or a lot of them are because units wound up in unexpected places. A tank uh, crew did not expect that their own soldiers were in front of them. That couldn't be possible according to the plan. Um, but of course, the battlefield is a very chaotic place. Uh, and so they just naturally assume that those must be enemy. In an urban terrain, in an urban situation, that can happen very, very easily where one part of the unit or, or an adjacent unit uh, maybe crosses a, a linear danger area, a street, uh, takes a building, and then inadvertently, two sides think that they're actually shooting at the enemy when they're actually shooting at their own guys. Um, and that can be difficult to stop, actually. It takes a minute to figure out who everybody is. But planning and control is kind of the first thing 
the better resources and the better you can create plans and communicate those plans down to every single soldier in the unit. Because if you think about my case, there was just some, I don't know how old he was, I mean, let's just say 20-year-old guy on the back end of that Browning uh, machine gun. And he just didn't know that we were coming and he was scared and he, he fired upon us. So now his commanders knew about it, but he didn't. So all of this planning and control measures have to be put into place down to the absolute lowest level. I think this is one thing when we're talking about, you know, Russian command and control and initiative of lower level leaders. And we also talked a little bit with Andrew Perpetua last week about the quality of Ukrainian leadership. There are some really, really good leaders in some of the brigades and, and they encourage um, information sharing and initiative. And there are some, to be honest, who have legacy Soviet ideas, which required less command and control, more sort of command and control um, simply by sight or by very strict control measures did not encourage initiative. But this initiative in case of friendly fire can also be dangerous. You can wind up in places where um, your uh, adjacent units uh, don't know where you should be or don't expect you to be there. So the first thing is, is, is setting in control measures such as phase lines such as left and right boundary lines, meaning, okay, unit, this is your left and right. You do not cross these things. Also in your mission briefings, ensuring that adjacent units, forward units, rear units, that their missions are also briefed, um, that you can expect this battalion on your left, their mission is to take this terrain feature over there, whether it be a large building or whether it be a hill or a forest, but that's their mission. That way, you know, okay, the guys to the left of us are going to be moving for that at this certain time. Then it comes into control and actually making sure that everybody is staying within those frames that are built within the plan. You know, there are things like Blue Force Tracker, which is a computer system. There are different variants of it has evolved over the years, which basically gives the as real time as possible, uh, the locations of different units on the, on the battlefield on a map. And that can even be pushed down into the vehicles themselves. So the tank crew or an infantry fighting vehicle crew or command station can actually see the battle playing out on real time and they can see where their units are in real time to try to identify where is blue force and where is uh, red force. But of course, that's not ubiquitous in, in all vehicles uh, in Ukraine. So we're going to have to do additional measures for that. These can include things like ensuring that radio frequencies are shared and understood so that if you do get into or if you have doubts about about an enemy position or a friendly position, you can actually call that person and ask them where they are. Of course, in, and if you can do this dismounted, this is even better in an urban environment because like that situation, it's actually fairly common in an urban situation, sadly common, that you do not recognize that the another building which is occupied by soldiers is actually your own soldiers because of the way the urban terrain works and the buildings, you didn't see them enter things can happen very quickly and and all of a sudden you can start um, shooting at your own guys. So we've got the, the planning aspect and the control aspect. This includes things such as um, ensuring that you have the radio frequencies to or the communication to your artillery support because you certainly need to be able to adjust fire or to cease fire if either rounds are not accurate and are hitting your own or in an area of your own soldiers or whether someone has actually targeted your own soldiers. So 
there need to be all kinds of communication coordinating instructions and that's really the first thing and this is built upon an idea of training of how important all of this is down to the lowest soldier because it only takes one soldier to cause a lot of damage with the firepower we have on the battlefield now this goes into crew drills such as um, in infantry fighting vehicles or in tanks you'll see in the infantry fighting vehicles from ukraine now um, you you will see good uh, crew talk where the gunner and the tank commander or the vehicle commander are checking with each other on targets before actually firing these are kind of safety mechanisms to ensure that just one person does not use a 30 millimeter or 25 millimeter or 100 and um, 120 millimeter to shoot at your own people so it's really based on a foundation of good structured planning and good structured communication based on a on a, on a basis of training i think we will see that some of the 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 most experienced units in on the ukrainian armed forces will have that it may not be exactly as nato armies might do it but they've been in conflict long enough now where if they didn't have uh, structured templates for this kinds of things at the beginning, they have certainly worked them out by now. That's also something that they will have been receiving with the training in the UK or in Poland or in Germany as uh, various Ukrainian units go through this, is, is all of these kinds of checks to ensure that what you're shooting at is actually what you want to be shooting at. So that's kind of the, the first step, Jonathan. Any, any questions so far before I get into markings? Fantastic. Thanks, Charles. I, I think perhaps civilian C friendly fire is a much more uh, e e egregious failure, but serving soldiers and veterans are, yeah, like uh, like your personalized example brought to us, uh, are more realistic about this. I was just going to ask you on the, on the importance of radios, what is your view on what Ukraine has done better than the Russians in this regard? Well, I, I haven't been on the ground. I haven't been in the in the units there, so I, I can't speak exactly to all of the equipment that they have and how exactly that they're using it. We do know that at least when we look at the mobilized units on the Russian side, there is not a lot of communication ability there. They certainly have portable radiums, but in a lot of the attacks that we saw through the winter, there wasn't a lot of use of them uh, in the dismounted side. They were tending to just control their forces either by overwatching them with drones or by giving them very, very specific detailed instructions that, okay, you are going to take this position and then you're going to take this position and then you're going to stop. And at that point, then they would observe it and there was not much communication needed nor I think even really expected. On the Ukrainian side, we do know that they have a lot of radios. I don't know exactly how they got all of them and whether they all work together, but how the, how the Ukrainian armed forces are, are actually integrating all of that mounted, dismounted, we will certainly get a, a, a good look at it uh, in the coming weeks or months when this offensive starts because you have not only the, the vehicle-mounted systems and, and you know how are they... All, radio communication always comes out in speed. That's how we can see it. If a unit is communicating well with one another and with its adjacent units and with its uh, supporting units behind it, you will see it move much quicker. There are much fewer delays, and that's what we will see coming up. Fantastic. Thank you, Charles. Ben, yeah, can you? Thanks a lot. Hi, Charles. Are you going to speak about tactics, or, or can I already ask a question about it? No, go for it. Okay, uh, so I know nothing about infantry tactics. I just 
heard recently that uh, you'd be like you had to use an L shape uh, tactic because it was um, it was the way to guarantee that you you would not shoot at your own man. Whereas, for instance, if you were using a U shape tactic to attack a position, while well, you would have your own man facing facing your own man, and the result catastrophic. Are there tactics that uh, a well-trained unit can use and that for risk of friendly fire's reasons, a less well-trained um, unit will not use? And what could be the consequences of this difference? Right. So um, at, the, at the smallest level, I don't know too much about a U-shaped tactic, but at its, at its smallest level, I mean, one of the an, an infantry combat battle drill that is run through ad nauseum in professional armies is the frontal suppression of fire and then a basically a flanking maneuver from one of one side or the other to uh, clear out that that enemy position um, whether it be from the left or from the right and the way that it works and this is trained repeatedly repeatedly is there is some kind of marking that is put on those units in the flanking force because essentially if you if you can imagine this the the frontal side so the bottom of the l let's just say is going to have a lot of heavy machine guns it, it, it could also have your vehicles your ifvs and, and all of these things their job is to suppress the enemy so they're going to be firing as much as they can uh, to keep the heads down of the enemy so that your the other side of the l can can push across your front um, so there are a number of different markings that can be used or signals that can be used to show how far that flanking force is because as they move across you will have to shift your fire continually in front of them so that you're not shooting into them um, this is something like at the tactical level say all of your planning control measures um, all of your phase lines all of this stuff doesn't work is or it's too tight is you get down to marking now everybody has seen the marking um techniques used by the ukrainians and, and russian forces so far we all remember the colored tape on the arm leg and helmet we've all seen the vehicle markings um on the russian side of course this is the origin of the of the famous z um, was one of their vehicle markings. Um, we've also seen how Ukrainians, especially when they have captured Russian equipment, have immediately painted over those markings and painted, for example, a Ukrainian flag on it, or even flown a Ukrainian flag from the turret. Um, these are these are really simple markings uh, that can work. Um, but once you get into that L-shaped or that that very very common battle drill of suppressing fire and then a flanking maneuver um you have to have those soldiers in the flanking side marked in some way um and we can go into markings in a second but does that answer your question ben oh yeah well i guess the question was a bit too too ambitious to have a, a direct answer but yes yes absolutely it does thanks off yeah and and commanders if we go back into the planning side you know, uh, it, it should be common sense to commanders, hopefully, that you do not um, 
you, you do not send uh, two forces of yours, uh, you know, going directly at each other in, in some way in an attacking maneuver. Um, this, that should all be planned and coordinated clearly. Um, one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up the, the friendly fire stuff when we're looking at an offensive is several weeks ago we talked about how to, how could a breakthrough look like? Um, the Ukrainians would try to break through, and what would that look like? And a lot of questions is how far can they go and how much friction do they have and what's their capability to move forward? One of the things we talked about was bypassing. So this could mean bypassing a settlement or a, a town in that the Ukrainians may decide that, okay, we do not want to go into it uh, because we want to push as far as we can. Or bypassing a, an obstacle or bypassing a enemy position, a Russian position. Um, once you start doing that, your risk of friendly fire starts to increase because now you have uh, blue forces and red forces, Ukrainians and Russians, sort of mixed up in the same battle space. There is no hard front line. Um, right now, as the front has been for the past several months, the risk for friendly fire is actually relatively low, um, at least ground to ground. Um, when we're talking air to ground or ground to air, it, it might be a bit different. But um, that will be something where at, when in planning all of their operations, the Ukrainians will be considering Okay, how do we not only how do we plan, how do we control, but also how do we mark our um, how do we, how do we mark our soldiers to ensure that everybody knows this is what our guys look like, and this is what their guys look like. Now, when we looked at the tape, I don't know if anybody noticed this, but um, they would change the color of the tape periodically, um, and this is kind of true for all markings. Um, they have to change at a regular interval because um you if your enemy knows how you're going to mark everything then they will immediately use it against you so sometimes um you know you may have to change your markings every couple days or even daily if the enemy is is quick to learn i've put a tweet in the nest to just look at some of the different kinds of markings that are used We've already, we know about the tape, uh, the colored tape on the soldiers. We also know about the vehicle painting. Here's a few others that are used quite often. One of them is smoke. So in that example of that, of that infantry attack, uh, which I talked about, Ben, I mean, one of the signals can be, okay, that flanking force will throw out a smoke grenade periodically. And then that way we will know how far along uh, you guys are. And there are different, there's all kinds of different colors, smoke, there's green, there's red, there's yellow, there's purple, there's white. These can all have different signals and they're helpful for not only ground to ground identification, but also air to ground because now helicopters, planes, drones, especially can, can precisely see uh, where you are. Of course, the bad thing is, is the enemy can see you as well. So speed is always the key. You need to mark yourself, but you don't really want to stay there forever because the Russian artillery spotter can see that purple smoke just as well as the Ukrainian drone does um, to be able to tell uh, the infantry fighting vehicles to shift fire. Another one is flares. Um, there are also all kinds of different flares. There are parachute flares that hang in the air. Um, they're typically used for illumination, but there are also star cluster flares that are often used for, for signaling. This has been 
used since World War I, green star clusters, red star clusters, so on. The first thing when my unit did when we were hit by friendly fire was send up a green star cluster. Luckily, the firing had stopped before we managed to get a, find a green star cluster and get it up into the air. I think we weren't quite as prepared as we should have been for that eventuality, but that was a signal. So these, these kinds of things can also help. This can also be mark on demand. So, for example, um, you can get a call over the radio that, hey, we're looking at a possible enemy position in your area. Please mark yourself, uh, send up a, a star cluster or uh, throw a smoke grenade or fire or, or, or show a strobe. This is another one. I infrared strobe lights. These are very, very common. Uh, they're very, very cheap. Often they're about the size of a Lego. Uh, they can fit on people's helmets. You can tape them onto antennas. You can um, stick them on a post. It doesn't matter. They take like a AA battery or a 9-volt battery. And they you cannot see them in the daylight. But at, when you, you look through night vision equipment, either through a vehicle or NVGs, they blink very, very brightly. In fact, in U.S. Army, it's very common that every single soldier has one of these. Now, in Ukraine... This is not going to be possible. Unfortunately, constant IR marking is not is not a good idea because, of course, the Russians also have night vision equipment in their vehicles and also um, personal NVGs and, and, of course, in drones with night vision capability as well. And so you will light up like a Christmas tree for them as well. But these things can be used directionally. And so you can, for example, uh, shield an IR strobe so that it's only pointed back in a certain direction to help mark yourself. You can also use IR strobes in a signaling type of way, similar like Morse code, but um, they're not gonna be using Morse code, but it may be that they have a password signal, for example, that says um, friendly forces is, is three uh, short ones and two long ones, for example. Panels are ubiquitous. That's kind of the next one. Uh, this is a picture of an actual military panel, but any kind of marking flag. These are especially useful in urban combat you take a rock, you tie on a string, and on the other end of the string, you tie a, a, a small flag, uh, whether it be one of these orange, uh, you cut up one of these orange-pink panels and tie it on there. And then what you do is once you've reached a building, you um, throw the flag out the window, but the rock stays on the windowsill. So now uh, people can see uh, behind you, all right, we have reached uh, this building. We have reached this spot. Uh, this is where we are. You can also take these panels, you can put them on the roofs of buildings so that your own drones, your own aircraft can see it. There's also thermal markings. Things like thermal tape can be bought at and basically any hardware store or thermal panels. These are not so useful for uh, normal you know, dismounted soldiers, but especially for vehicles. When we're looking at the Bradleys and the Challengers and, and the Martyrs and CB90s, you know, they'll be looking through thermal sites and so you can put a design in thermal tape or a thermal panel so that your own forces, your own gunners in those vehicles will know, okay, this is one of ours because um, we have put, for example, a, a thermal diamond shape on our vehicles and the Russians haven't. So all kinds of, all kinds of examples, but of course, the risk of all of this is you know, once you mark yourself, you've also marked uh, yourself for the enemy. So you have to be quick. And if you can gain uh, at least uh, deny the, the enemy, at least drone overwatch, you have 
greater ability to use different marking methods. So that's kind of an idea, you know, some basics of avoiding friendly fire. The main thing is, is in the planning and the coordination, but it's also important to develop uh, whatever standards you have for marking your own soldiers to try to avoid the tragic events that are fairly common on the battlefield. It's it's a sad story, but it, it does happen. It's a very chaotic environment uh, in the assault, and, and that does happen. I think we, will, we won't know, of course, a lot of this until we actually see the offensive start, what kind of markings that they're actually using, what kind of command and control. We will really not hear too much about friendly fire events. There will be stories. It will happen, sadly. But hopefully, I think the Ukrainian army especially with all the training that they have received and all of the practice they have gained over the last year, uh, will be developing good systems to help uh, preserve their, their people and also their key equipment from uh, friendly fire. Yep, Ireland. Yeah, thank you, Charles. So you, you, bear, you, you, you touched into the topic of, uh, of communications. And um, could you maybe... Uh, Tell us a little bit more about how the the training and use of different command nets or radio nets is so important, especially when you're talking about an offensive maneuver. Because I'm, I imagine that this must have been a part, of, a big part of the training that the Ukrainians have received in uh, in Germany and Poland, for instance. Yeah, I think I think so. Um, I mean, looking. I, so I don't obviously I don't have the full uh, syllabus of everything that they they were trained on, but knowing how early and how often communication training and radio training is built into uh, NATO armies, I would be very surprised if if the Ukrainian soldiers hadn't received it uh, while they were in the UK or in um, in Germany or Poland um, or wherever they were. Okay, so what's important about it? Depending on how the the battle space is set up depending on how the units are set up you know a, a platoon or a company let's just say a company size so about 100 people what is that about uh, 15 armored vehicles or so they may need to monitor or to speak on say seven or eight different radio frequencies for an individual platoon so uh, four vehicle five vehicle part of that you know, they may need to be able to speak with four other frequencies. And those would be um, your artillery people, your commander, um, your own internal between those four or five vehicles, who's going left, who's going right. Um, hand signals can be used in this case as well and often are to, to save on bandwidth on the on the radio because there's only one person can speak at the same time. But the radio communication gets extremely busy and you're speaking at different levels. You have higher echelon uh, unit, you have your own unit, you have maybe the unit to your right or to your left where you want to hear what they're doing. You have maybe a supply net, you have an artillery net, if you have a drone operators net. All of these things could be going on and different units will do it in different ways. Now, if all of that is running through one person, like the officer, and we say, okay, Alan, you're the officer, and you're responsible for talking to five different people on five different frequencies, that is not a very efficient way of doing it because you're going to have one or two radios that you're constantly switching back and forth. You're going to be missing messages. You're going to constantly switching and trying to give reports and gain information. 
So typically, uh, the way it's done is is that this uh, these roles and responsibilities are sort of um, uh, divided up, and that means you need more soldiers who can speak on the radio and who can deliver clear reports, can call for artillery fire, can direct drone activity, um, all of these things, because the officer will not be able to do it all. So typically in a case like this, you know, each different vehicle might be doing a different function. So one vehicle is talking to artillery, one, to, one vehicle is talking to the drones, one vehicle is talking to the higher commander. And then on their own little internal net, uh, frequency is where they're actually sharing all that information and making sure that they all know what's going on. That requires cross-training, that requires experience, and it's something, that's why it's it started so early. That communication is very, very important, and and it, it, it shouldn't be left to one person. I think that's a lesson learned for over the last, uh, you know, basically 100 years of, of radio uh, in, in warfare. Thanks, Charles. Um, we've seen um, quite a bit of uh, discussion this week, uh, detailed by analysts such as uh, Ian Latif, whose latest lengthy analysis I've posted to the Nest. I should say those who are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts can find this via the Tochni main account. It's about the important first week in any upcoming Ukrainian offensive. Why is this first week so crucial at this point in the war? Yeah, so I, you know, over the past several weeks, and you can check them out on Spotify, but we've covered a lot of the topics and what we think are important for the upcoming offensive. Last week, we had the interview with Andrew Perpetuo, where we looked at shaping operations and some of the specific attacks that had happened um, and the trends that were happening in, you know, at a really granular level on the front. Before that, we looked at, you know, what does it take to have a breakthrough and, and to get through the breach and, and all of this stuff. And I, I've seen a lot of discussions on social media regarding the upcoming offensive, a lot of questions. So it's great that, that you have some of these <laughs> compiled. Uh, what is important about the first week? I actually don't think it even needs to be the first week. I think the first 72 hours of an assault is, is, is very, very important. And we will know quite quickly, um, that, well, the Ukrainians will know quite quickly. Um, we, of course, will probably not know exactly um, that quickly, um, back far away in, in the Twitter sphere and, and Telegram world. But um, the, the first 72 hours is very, very important because uh, when we're talking about making a breakthrough, assuming that the breakthrough is the way that they would conceptually go after it, is to try to break through these defenses and break through the lines, the, the key is is in order to cause a breakthrough, you will have to have a certain consolidation of forces. Now, this could be over over a number of dozens of, of, of square kilometers. Um, it doesn't mean all parked on naturally on top of one another. We talked a little about the, the timing of all of this is very, very important, so you don't have clusters of soldiers. But they are going to be in a concentrated area. So it is going to be very, very important for them to get out of that concentrated area, out of out of the, the breakthrough area, out of the breaching lanes as quickly as possible. Otherwise, they are really at risk for indirect fire and, of course, um, air support. We've seen Russian um, close or Russian, it's not close air support, but Russian air support using these glide bombs, which are relatively, relatively accurate. Um, and this is currently a threat that the Ukrainians cannot really counter. Um, 
So as lo- they need to get out of that consolidated forces posture. So we will know quite quickly, were they able to make the breakthrough or were they not? Now, with a caveat here, it, there will you know, the Ukrainians would be well advised um, and will certainly uh, use things like feints and deceptions. So maybe sitting in our chairs here, the first attack that we hear about may not be the main effort. Because uh, one of the things that the Ukrainians will want to do will be to disguise to the Russian side for as long as possible what is the main effort. But for that main effort, that first 72 hours is, is critical because that's the time at which the Russians will have had time to react once they've identified an attack and, and try to stop it as, as quickly as they can. So I actually think it's less than a week. I think your experience in this is reflected the uh, EMT uh, thread, Charles. Thank you for that analysis. Um, I think when I, probably a lot of people, when they read this thread and are listening to you now, they've probably seen the video of the, the, the Ukrainian roller mine, mine rollers going forward, the speed at which those move, and the, the, the speed which Ukrainians are going to have to move at some points during this uh, offensive. And also there's, of course, the Air Force disparity. How important would you say this disparity in, in, in the Air Force is going is going to be yeah so on, on the air force side i mean i I'm, I'm not an air force guy so i can't speak too much about it but of course the question that everybody is asking is will the russian air force ever show up we now know that they have this glide bomb capability um they're apparently even able to drop them on belgorod um effectively if they want to um but this is a capability that um the ukrainians cannot counter at the moment you know the range on these uh, glide bombs depending on which ones is, is going into the dozens and over 50 kilometers this is not something that the ukrainians right now can touch and these are exactly the type of weapons that can be dangerous in in breakthrough operations if you have a consolidation of forces but of course the question i'm asking like everybody else is will the will the russian air force show up and can it show up um, to even do this That'll be uh, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, so that's on the Air Force d- d- yeah disparity question. I unfortunately I'd have to leave it up to an Air Force guy who maybe knows where the F-16s are at. Thank you, Charles. I'm just going to take a moment to um, just ask the audience if you'd like to come up and ask uh, U.S. veteran Sapper Charles Rye uh, any questions on this topic. Please do feel free. The Q and A is uh, is ongoing. And we'd love to hear your comments or question. If you're feeling a bit shy, please do uh, feel free to DM the main accounts and uh, we'll, we're happy to ask it on the air for you. So with that being said, Charles, the important first week, the contingencies that, that Ukraine uh, will have to prepare for, regardless of where, where those lines of contact lie at the end of, end of that first week, how important is mobility going to be for its uh, logistics and its its fire support. Yeah, uh, extremely important. Um, I, I think this also comes down to you know which area they decide to attack. I think there was one comment about you know having an attack uh, all along the front line, basically um, that the Ukrainians would kind of just uh, everybody face the Russians and start marching forward. 
I'm, I'm oversimplifying the concept uh, that some people propose, but I don't really see that as, as a likely solution. Uh, one, they haven't really done it before like that. Um, even even Hairson was not like that. And we've seen exactly how that strategy worked for the Russians um, over the last four months. So I certainly am expecting a, a breakthrough type operation. Um, mobility is, of course, the question is, is, is it's 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 kind of a feedback loop and you know you would set your objectives depending on what your capabilities are so the more you think you have the engineers and the supply and the trucks and and the self-propelled artillery and all of that stuff the more you assess that you have that capability the further out you can put your objective if you see well i don't have everything in this area that allows me to go that far then you you change your objective and you move it to something more achievable there has been a lot of stuff uh, that has been provided to ukraine we're finally seeing it arrive in country it looks like they are really putting together some good maneuver units now the question is is everybody's been looking at of course of the the high firepower items like the challengers the leopards and and so on but of course the question is is then well, what do they have on the truck side? You know, we, we know that both the Ukrainians and the Russians have been using a lot of civilian vehicles to provide logistic support. The Russians have managed to overcome a lot of their train issues by, uh, you know, just throwing massive amounts of, of civilian trucks at it, but they can only get it to, you know, 20 kilometers or so with, within the front line. Um, and then there needs to be uh, another another step after that, so the military trucks and so on. Um, I I know that a lot of rolling vehicles have been provided to Ukraine. The question is, is it enough? It's never enough, but if they can get it all together, yeah. So it's going to be extremely important, but only only important insofar as that sets your first objectives, how far you can go, what is a realistic objective. Um, if they feel like they don't have the maneuver support, um, the supply and, and all of that, then they will not set their objectives so far. Thanks, Charles. I think that's been a, this has been another segment in a wonderful series, like you said, with Andrew Perpetua uh, most recently, but uh, touching a, a lot on the potential outcomes of uh, uh, any forthcoming Ukrainian offensive and and the kind of challenges that it may see. So um, I'd certainly recommend checking out, if anyone's missed it, this series on the Spotify and Apple podcasts. So Charles, would you like to wrap up before we go on to our wonderful Ben? Yeah, just to, to summarize a couple things uh, from the military situation over the last week and last couple of weeks, as you mentioned, we've been uh, looking at the upcoming offensive by the Ukrainian forces. We don't know exactly when it will come. It will come whenever that window of opportunity in their shaping operations is, is to their liking. So currently, of course, on the front line, uh, we should not uh, forget about the hard fighting that is still ongoing. It has uh, tempered somewhat um, since the uh, Russian offensive has uh, more or less stalled or lost much of his bite. But of course, um, just because it has lost much of his bite, its bite does not mean that it is not intense fighting still in, in Bakhmut, in Navgivka, um, around Kupiansk. So uh, even though uh, 
it's it it feels strange to say this it is has been a slow couple of weeks on the front lines um but certainly not for the men and women who are there thanks jonathan thank you charles so uh our latest on the economics front is finally here so ben i hear that the predicted ukrainian offensive might not have started yet but Ukrainian financial offensive actually started a long time ago. Absolutely. I wouldn't have said, said it better myself. Uh, the, um, before buying, uh, well, rather, before sending material to the front, before sending men to the front, you need to pay for them. You need to pay salaries, you need to pay for the, the well, the actual stuff that you're using. Charles has mentioned again and again that big and small, they are all very, very important. So I really don't think I'm uh, surprising anyone by telling you that war is expensive. And because it's uh, expensive, it's thus difficult to fund. And as a consequence, there's a lot of headaches that are had in every finance, uh, finance ministry of a country at war. In Moscow, it's relatively simple. It's relatively straightforward. It seems that more or less, the either uh, willingly or unwillingly, the Russians are not really relying on uh, debt markets. They are selling a little bit, but uh, they have a lot of reserves. Uh, they can tax quite a lot, be it their population or their trade with the rest of the world. So the Russians have this sort of um, wealth, a very large wealth that they can use to immediately pay for their war efforts. So the, the, the problem in Moscow is relatively simple. They have a lot of money. They use it. End of story. In Ukraine, on the other hand, it's a completely, completely different uh, kind of worms. Because uh, again, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to shock anyone by telling you that over the past 30 years, the Ukrainian state has been rather weak, opting, among other things, for a policy of relatively low taxes uh, and having uh, sold a lot of its main assets at very uh, distressed prices over the years and thus not being able to rely so much on, uh, on those assets. So the question is, how is Ukraine uh, paying for its war efforts? Because this is, this is uh, not only an important discussion to have for, for the answer, but it's also this important discussion to have to remind everyone that regardless of all the help that um, the West is providing to Ukraine, regardless of the billions and billions that have been spent either to buy military material or to help the reconstruction already, or uh, the to, to alleviate the, the humanitarian crisis that uh, had begun and is still ongoing, all this money is great. But the first person paying for the war effort of Ukraine is, of course, Ukrainians. So this, is, this has to be said. And once we've said that, how do they pay for it? Because Ukraine is not like Russia. It is not the main supplier, exporter of, uh, of crude oil in the world. It is not benefiting from massive gas reserves. Uh, all these 
assets that the Russians have, the Ukrainians don't have. Even when we're talking about taxation, Ukraine and the Ukrainians are fairly poorer than the Russians and less numerous. So the tax base is actually more limited. So paying for the war is very difficult. Uh, we see this time and again. Um, not all the material is available. Uh, a lot of people are having to make do with whatever they have. And so, naturally, the question: What are they? Whether they're how are they paying? Basically, there's two options: either you pay now or you pay later. Uh, I'm going to first review the options, and then I'm going to try to uh, understand what would be best for Ukraine and where they're going at the moment. Uh, so the, there's two main options, and within each option, there's two smaller options. So you can either pay now or pay later. Pay now means that you're paying out of budget. And for this, there's two options, taxes or the sale of assets. Taxes, well, we all know them, we all pay them in our respective countries. So that's relatively simple. Uh, and as I said, in Ukraine, the taxes are fairly limited. And the, the, the sale of assets, well, I did say that over the years, uh, the post-Soviet state uh, of Ukraine has sold quite a lot of its assets, thus creating or having a huge part uh, in creating the, the oligarchy that we know and detest. But uh, there's still quite a lot of important assets that remain in the... Um, under under the state control, or that are that have returned to it as uh, some banks, for instance, that used to be private and uh, had to be renationalized to avoid a bank run. So that's the two paying out of pocket right now. And the other option is to pay with debt. So you borrow, and with the money that the borrowers are giving you, you pay for whatever you need. Of course, the problem uh, is that that money you need to repay later. And here I'm going to rely on a great podcast from earlier this week uh, called Micromusing with uh, David Beckworth. And what is what he pointed to using the American example, but it works really, really well in this case, is that how do you pay back is absolutely crucial because it will, um, it will allow you first to fight for a longer time Secondly, to be able to rebuild your economy and uh, your country after the end of the war. And finally, it will allow you to face the next threat more or less easily. So, and, and, and here's the, the choice you've got to make. The choice is either you repay the, the investors in full, you repay the debt holders in full, or not playing with inflation, not playing with any shaving, just pay back. The problem there is that it implies that your population that sometimes has gone through years of wars, that sometimes has had already to make immense sacrifices, that population, once the war is over, the next day they celebrate it, and the next day the tax collector comes and says, sorry guys, we need to pay for the fat cats who have given the money sometimes uh, a decade ago and we need to we need to give them their money or they're not going to be happy they'll pay up and you end up with extremely high taxes uh which is um and not only high taxes but high taxes that are not going to i don't know 
paying for, uh, buying new roads or rebuilding uh, houses or whatever. No, they're going straight in the pocket of the investors. It's extremely difficult politically. It often feels extremely unfair because, uh, well, the soldiers, for instance, they tend to have lost a lot. So they took losses. Isn't it fair that the investors will t uh, should take losses as well? Politically, it's very easy to argue that. And uh, economically, there's also very strong arguments in favor of, at the very least, delaying payment. Isn't it better to grow your economy as fast as possible? And once your economy is bigger, well, out of this bigger economy, then it will be a lot easier to pay back your debt. So this is, this is the sort of arguments that are put forth by the people who want uh, the, the bondholders to take a hit at the end of the war. Of course, on the other hand, bondholders are saying, yes, we're taking a lot of money. Yes, we borrowed at a very high rate. For instance, the rate of borrowing at the moment for the Ukraine government is 18%. Could be higher, could be a lot higher, but it's still um, something like close to five times what the US government is paying for. So we're, we're talking very, very high, uh, very, very high return rate for them. So they, they, they can say, yes, we've taken, uh, we've taken risks. No, we want our money. But don't forget that the Russians may come back. And the day they come back, maybe in 2030, maybe in 2035, you want to return to the, to the bond market and say, look, last time around, we've actually uh, paid back in full, on time. So you should give us the money. You should give us as much money as cheaply as possible, because honestly, we're good for it. And that's, that's all, uh, that's all the, uh, very crucial. And that also tells us that those political decisions, because those are political decisions, those political decisions will have to be taken based on, among other things, a threat assessment, which, by the way, also shows how important it will be for Ukraine to join, at the very least, NATO and probably the EU on the, the defense front. Because this will mean that Ukraine will be in a much, much stronger position to negotiate with the debt holders. They will be able to tell them, guys, the Russians are not coming back. We are NATO. They are not coming back. We don't need you as much. So you'd better take a hit now because, well, you don't have leverage on us. So uh, financially, uh, joining NATO would probably be an immense boost for the Ukrainians. That there would be actually, I, I, I would be fascinated if someone in the, the think tank sphere could try to uh, estimate how much they would save. But uh, that would represent um, um, very, very likely billions uh, that would be given to a, to a population uh, at the moment when they need it the most. So now, what is Ukraine actually doing? Uh, well, unfortunately, the answer is a bit of everything. Of course, a large portion of the budget is going straight to the army. Uh, for instance, recently they uh, increased the salary of the troops at the front, uh, or at least they tried. Um, it's very difficult, they're fighting for it, but the tax base of the Ukrainians has declined 
So it's extremely difficult for them to, to pay anything straight out of budget because, well, they don't have the money. What they do have, on the other hand, are assets. Uh, as I said, they have banks, they have factories. Unfortunately, Ukraine, um, I've been talking with a few Ukrainians about this. Uh, it's, a, it's a subject in itself. But suffice to say that there, there are two schools there. One of them is to say, well, we should not sell the assets that we have because, well, they are our assets. And by the time Ukraine recovers, we will be able to uh, invest in them, develop them, and then sell them at a much, much better price. Because if we have to sell them now at a penny on the dollar, uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to make enough money. And on the other hand, we're going to be in the situation where new oligarchs will be able to develop, which is bad economically, bad for the government, and also extremely bad politically, because you find yourself with a new oligarch class, which you're going to have to fight uh, against probably of the coming 30 or 50 years. So extremely, extremely difficult situation politically. But on the other hand, what other people are saying is, yeah, but imagine if the war lasts two, three more years, five more years, or even if it doesn't last that long, but before the Ukrainian government can invest in those assets, it's going to be three, four, five, ten years. Well, then at the end of that period, those assets will be worthless. The factories will be old, rusted, no investment, and basically you will sell them for the value of the land they're on and nothing else. So better sell it now because, well, yeah, there, there are problems. But if you sell them now, at least you sell functioning companies, functioning uh, plants, rather than selling them later. Because later they will be worth nothing. So clearly in that dilemma, the, the Ukrainian government has begun to uh, say that they've taken a decision and they're going to start selling some of the crown, uh, crown jewels and some of the factories, some of the companies that belong to the Ukrainian states are being put on sale to try to find buyers at a very, very low price. So um, if you have a couple of millions lying around, the Ukrainian government seems to have decided that the best for everyone was for you to give them to them and uh, you will um, be the proud owner of a Ukrainian factory. So that's the, that's the uh, out-of-pocket aspect. And when it comes to borrowing, well, I told you uh, Ukraine is borrowing a lot uh, and seems to be able to borrow a lot. So that's, that's positive. And what are they going to do? It's unclear. It's unlikely that a country that is trying to get into the EU is going to let infl inflation run wild. Maybe a little bit for six months, a year, uh, but it's not going to be the solution that's going to that's going to solve their debt crisis. Their, well, it's not a crisis yet, but the debt situation by the end of the war. So they are probably going to find themselves in a situation where they will have to pay up quite a bit. But as I said a little bit earlier, they will be in a situation where they can leverage their uh, joining NATO. Uh, to get a better deal from their their bondholders, so um, all that to say that this is a difficult situation. Uh, there's no uh, silver bullet. Uh, all this, all the options have good aspects, and all the options have bad aspects. And the Ukrainian ministry is at the moment trying to 
steer the ship the best they can. And hopefully uh, they take the good decisions. And uh, the best we can do is probably try to support them in whatever decision that they, they take, either, as we saw, uh, by buying some of the Ukraine assets that are being put on sale by the government, or and if you if you work in a company that could be interested in this sort of things, maybe not a bad idea to refer to your manager about this opportunity. Or if uh, if you run a company yourself, that's also an option. And the the other thing is the Canadian government, for instance, is uh, accessing the bond market uh, themselves in the name of the Ukrainian government uh, as a guarantor, as a guarantor for Ukrainian uh, borrowing. And that, again, is a way to bring down the cost of borrowing for the Ukrainian government. Um, it is more than charity. It is, it's, it's a lifeline. And that, that, could, that could be also a solution worth consider, considering, and hopefully uh, a solution that will be adopted by more countries uh, in the coming few months. So, Jonathan, that's it. That was the, the four options and the arguments in favor and against. Uh, what would you go for? Oh, I, you, you know, Ben, I think when people talk to their elected representatives about Ukraine, they mostly talk about the necessary weaponry for defense and liberation, the weaponry for liberation from occupation. What Ukraine needs in terms of economic help um, needs to be part of that conversation. Uh, so I, I would go for, to answer your question, I would go for uh, ensuring the longest possible term on debt repayments. That's my answer. Uh, but like, like you meticulous, meticulously outlined there, Ben, this uh, economic assistance needs to be part of that conversation. Um, it's perhaps the first thing which um, the Kremlin seeks to use uh, against Western democracies, which uh, of course is a is is a is a is a totally illogical argument. But um, I just thought I'd ask you a question, Ben, because I've thrown something up into the nest, and it's about. Um, uh, about dark money, Russian dark money, that it's um, money which it's using to to fund its uh, invasion of Ukraine and the war crimes there. And uh, it's about Cyprus. And I guess since the release of the Panama Papers, there's been things happening, in investigations specifically happening. And in certain places, these in investigations have turned up compromising material uh, and important information on Russian influence and where that money is going, where it's being spent. And um, it's led to uh, tragic murders, such as the Maltese journalist, I believe, Daphne Galizia in uh, 2017. Could you tell us a little bit about Cyprus and, um, and, and what you think is, is so crucial? Oh, thank you very much. Yes, Cyprus is, um, I think it's a fascinating uh, case because well, as everyone knows, it's a small, uh, embattled uh, state that, as such, is a perfect target for the uh, Russian op uh, influence operations. But it has also a lot that it reminds us a lot of other much larger states that have also been influenced by um, by the, the Russian influence operations and by understanding Cyprus a lot better. I think we will understand our own situation a lot better for those of us not in Cyprus. Um, we will understand our own situation a lot better. 
uh, because uh, Cyprus is almost a chemically pure case where uh, a whole state, a whole population is driven towards policies that go against its own interest uh, as a whole, but that really favor a very small uh, fringe elite that is in uh, that is in contact with the with the Russians, and of course that favors the Russians themselves. Uh, you're perfectly right in pointing to the Panama Papers. Very interestingly, a lot of journalists have reported that uh, Vladimir Putin Putin considers that the the release of the Panama Papers was actually a CIA job designed to uh, humiliate him and entirely uh, 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 going against him. The fact that it basically uh, splashed scandal on absolutely everyone uh, doesn't seem to bother him at all. Uh, he's sure that it was against him. So understanding uh, these often opaque places is absolutely crucial. And if, if you're okay with this, I, I'd like to take you back to 1974. Uh, it's a very difficult year for Cyprus because, as many of you know, that's the moment when northern Cyprus is invaded by the Turkish army, uh, follows war, uh, and um, at the end of the conflict, sort of very uneasy peace, uh, which completely leaves the, 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 the Cypriot economy completely trashed. So Cyprus is isolated, doesn't have many friends, as I just remarked, since Greece was not able to intervene, uh, the West was not able to intervene to stop the, the Turks, and even the Russians were not able to intervene. So they're feeling very lonely. They don't have, uh, they don't have many friends. Uh, they don't, they're, they're isolated even geographically. It's difficult for them. And then there's, they got a strike of luck. It's terrible for other people, it's sometimes great for some. And that strike of luck is the Lebanese civil war. Uh, you probably know that Beirut during the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s was the, the, cent, the financial beating heart of both the Eastern Mediterranean and the Arab world. It was, it was a little London, it was a little Switzerland. Uh, banks were ruling the place. Um, it, was, it, it was absolutely tremendous uh, in terms of financial development. But banks and insurers and uh, investors don't do very well in places that uh, are ruled by militias. They don't do very well when people are shooting in the streets. So um, many of the Beirut financial elite decided to take the highway. The problem was where to go. Uh, long story short, they decided to go to Cyprus. It was close. Uh, it was uh, uh, not too dissimilar from their small uh, relatively weak state, it was great for them. So they decided to go to Cyprus, and that's when Cyprus started to become a crucial financial center. For all its isolation, Cyprus actually had a couple of very strong um, cards in sense. The first one was that it was a former British colony, and as a former British colony, it had uh, contacts with the city. So if you had money in a bank in Cyprus was relatively easy and relatively um, simple in terms of discretion uh, to send it to London. A lot easier than it would have been if your money had been in Istanbul or in Athens or, for instance, in Moscow. So the 70s, 80s, uh, Cyprus gradually takes over Beirut and becomes 
is uh, the beating heart of the middle, the, the financial Middle East. Comes 1919, and 1990 is the end of the Lebanese civil war. Everyone, everyone is very happy, except of course the the Cypriots, who suddenly realize that their main gig is probably is probably about to end, and they need to reinvent themselves. They don't know what to do, so they probably switch on the TV and realize that the USSR is collapsing. The USSR, the, the Cypriots, they know them quite well. Russia has been interested in Cyprus and has begun to send armies in Cyprus since the 1770s. So they've been around for over two centuries already. Uh, they're a known entity. And on top of that, they share, um, they can easily claim to share religion. They can easily claim uh, to share enemies because remember, um, Cyprus uh, is considered to have been abandoned by the West. Uh, back in 1974, so they're quite happy with uh, Russian support. The Russians, on the other hand, well, they need uh, Cyprus and the Cyprus connections with London, uh, as well as with the, the, the Middle East. Why, why do they need this? Well, first, probably the FSB, uh, well, what was then still the KGB, uh, had a lot of money that it needed to transfer uh, as quickly as possible out of the quickly collapsing um, USSR. And Cyprus was the perfect backdoor into the international financial system. And thus began the long love story between the Russians and Cyprus. Within uh, a couple of years, uh, the, the links were so strong that they negotiated an agreement that the the money that had already been taxed in Russia would not be taxed again in Cyprus. And conversely, if money had been taxed in Cyprus, it would not be taxed in Russia. So uh, this, this love story started. Cyprus was perfect. Uh, well, first of all, it's a very nice place to stay if you have to stay somewhere. But on top of this, uh, it was not Russia. And that was very important. At the time, when, with the crazy 90s, uh, people get gunned down, banks appear disappear. You never know where, where your money is going to be safe or not. On the other hand, the Cypriots with 20 years experience with the, the, the Lebanese banks have now developed into extremely safe hands, uh, trusted by everyone that needs uh, trust. And uh, a lot of money is then flowing towards Cyprus. Things uh, are even getting better for Cyprus because it becomes clear very soon that they are going to join the EU. So not only are they going to be the back door to London, they're going to be the back door to Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Paris. It's going to be fantastic. And the Russians know it. They're extremely happy about that. But, and that's when the interests of the whole of Cyprus and the interest of the Russian investors, uh, bank account holders are starting to diverge. On the one hand, the Russians need everything to remain the same. No taxes, no uh, control, uh, no problem. People in Cyprus, on the other hand, well, when you enter the European club, you enter a situation in which, well, there's quite a lot of countries that tax uh, a lot, uh, where it becomes possible to build an efficient state, where uh, quite a lot of money is starting to come from abroad for uh, both investment and help. So you don't need to uh, rely so heavily 
on the goodwill of a couple of investors. So the early 2000s is the moment when Cyprus could have taken the road of a strong state of, of uh, I want to say, a clean financial system. And when the Russians basically managed to convince the ruling elite of Cyprus to do nothing of the sort. A, a little bit later, it, it was uh, strongly uh, implied that the uh, Cypriot president had actually extremely strong ties with the Russians, some of the big Russian investors. And when, when we're talking Cyprus, we're not like we're, we're talking two types of people. On the one hand, we're talking about the guy who has maybe one or two uh, restaurants in uh, in Moscow or in uh, in some provincial place. Maybe he has 500,000 500, euros. Maybe he has a million. He would rather much have them safe in uh, a Cyprus bank than elsewhere. So he just put them there. And those guys, well, they're important, but they don't have that much influence. Those that have really massive influence are the billionaires. Michael Friedman, uh, we talked about him a little bit earlier. He's, uh, uh, he has, his main company is in Cyprus. Uh, Roman Abramovich, his main company is in Cyprus as well. Basically, every single, virtually every single major Russian billionaire is uh, either residing in Cyprus or owns a very important uh, company in Cyprus and those guys they can influence the government so that's the first moment when uh, Cyprus diverges from the path that should have been its uh, its salvation basically unfortunately uh, 2004 passes and after 2004 2008 the global crisis uh, which finally catches up with Cyprus in 2012 at that point the, the um, Cypriot government is almost bankrupt. They have to uh, pay a lot of their debt. And because they're a weak government, because they don't have that much taxation in place, they are not able to repay. The, they turn towards Russia, ask Russia for uh, an easy bailout. Russia refuses. So they have to turn to the other European countries. And the other European countries are saying, yeah, we're going to help you, but you need to help yourself first. And this implies that you're going to have to uh, take a cut out of um, the bank accounts, especially those held by foreigners. You're going to have to take a cut out of it, of it for themselves, for, for, to pay back the, the debt holders. It's, it's, it's a long, protracted fight where the, the, the Cypriots are trying not to do it but uh, they finally decide to do it. And uh, the, the, the government finance uh, is saved, but a lot of the Russians have been spooked. And all the money that was then slipping in, in, uh, in, in the banks in Cyprus just vanishes. They take it back to, but they don't usually take it back to Russia, but they take it to other places, Dubai, London, uh, the Cayman Islands, a number of, of other places, because Cyprus is not considered safe anymore. But is it the end of the Russian influence on Cyprus? No, it's not. Because uh, Cyprus still has a lot of finance professionals, people who can do a lot more than just taking your money and holding it in the safe. They have investors, they have accountants, they have, um, they have 
uh, a lot of financial services. And this, if well handled, could be um, Cyp Cyprus's future. Uh, if you can trust them, if you can trust their, their competence and their diligence and their, their capacity, uh, people from Turkey, people from Greece, people from the whole of the Middle East are going to flock towards Cyprus and rely on them. The problem is that the Russians know exactly uh, the quality of the Cyprus workforce as well. But unlike the Greeks and the Turks and the people in the Middle East, they need it a lot more. Yes, they don't leave their money in Cyprus anymore, but what they do need is Cyprus as the back door to Europe. Uh, what's happening at the moment is that a lot of Russians uh, were, sorry, I forwarded towards 2014 and the invasion of Crimea. After the invasion of Crimea, a lot of Russians find themselves confronted to sanctions. And many European and American finance service providers simply do not want to touch the Russians. It doesn't matter whether you're on a sanction or not on a sanction, they don't want to touch them. And uh, many uh, Russians are finding themselves banks without service, without uh, advice, nothing. And that's the moment when uh, a few service providers in Cyprus come out. Uh, the most famous of them is called Merit Service, which basically specializes in, um, in gray areas. They take people who are potentially under sanction, could be under sanction, uh, and uh, that no bank and no service provider in the world would touch with a thousand meter pole, and they service them. They give them advice, they give them uh, all the services that uh, you would expect. Of course, they require extremely high payments, but they uh, they do that. In, in doing this, they are creating a massive risk for Cyprus as a whole, because Cyprus does uh, gains the um, reputation of being the sort of place that is doing business with criminals. This is absolutely crucial. Uh, at some point, this is this is really no joke. That means that if you don't if you want to be safe in terms of compliance, uh, you simply do no job in Cyprus. If you want to be safe, if you want to keep your asset liquids, you don't leave them in Cyprus because at any point, the guy you're relying on in Cyprus might find himself under sanction. It happened several times. Several Cyprus banks are having to close due to the US Treasury being extremely unhappy about them. And even more importantly, recently, Meritus Service has found itself under flak and has also had to retreat. And as a result, the access to the dollar of the Cyprus uh, institutions is put into question. There are people in the US government who are saying the people in Cyprus are not playing fair. And as a result, they should not have access to the dollar. You cannot have a finance industry without the dollar. It's impossible. If Cyprus loses access to the dollar, they're over. And that's the sort of, that's the sort of danger that those few individuals for admittedly extremely large paychecks are making their whole country run. The whole industry that they represent is under threat by their behavior. And those behaviors ultimately are due to Russian influence. So what you see there, and I'm going to wrap here, is that uh, Russian money is not just money. 
It's the sort of things that comes with strings attached and that lead sometimes small minorities, but sometimes entire countries onto a path that is one of corruption, struggle against other countries, and of self-defeating choices. There's a lot of articles that I've been reading in the, in the press in Cyprus that are basically saying that the whole industry now has to be rebuilt. They need to rebuild entirely the trust that uh, their clients and that foreign governments may have had in them in the past. Nowadays, people simply do not trust them anymore. And there's a real risk that the whole of the Cyprus financial system might collapse due to this lack of trust. So that's an example that is worth pondering. Uh, last week, we talked about Finland as something that uh, hopefully a lot of people would learn about and try to emulate. Uh, now, uh, I present you the case of Cyprus uh, as an example of a country that we really need to learn about in order to avoid doing like them. Uh, hopefully, that will uh, that that has interested you. Um, I apologize for those of you who know the Cyprus case very very well. Um, I realize that it's infinitely more complex than this. Uh, I I hope I, I did not denaturate too much and that you could um, recognize uh, the main traits of the story. Um, but yeah, again, if you're if you're looking for a fantastic job, uh, fantastic uh, book to write, uh, this one uh, how Cyprus became the safe haven for Russian money is absolutely, absolutely crucial. But finally, I wanted to end on the fact that sanctions are very important in this case, that uh, they're being taken at the moment. So for the EU, it's relatively difficult to sanction itself. It's, it's a whole business. Uh, but for the UK and for the US, who have been threatening Cyprus uh, to take action and who last week actually have put thir um, 13 uh, people and institu institutions from Cyprus on the sanction list, this is time for action. And clearly the, the authorities have understood that enough playing. They've actually played once. This is one of the things I absolutely did not know and uh, was absolutely shocked to find. Probably in um, Kahoot with, um, with the Russians back in the 90s, Cyprus was the main uh, exit door for Slobodan Milosevic and the Serbian regime which was also under sanctions and the Cyprus financial system was put at the, their service for them to, well, just have access to the rest of the world. So they've done it once in the 90s and um, it was very dangerous that they would do it again. Uh, in some aspect, they may have had, but uh, I do believe now that the very heavy-handed uh, threats that have been um, that have been uh, emitted by the US and by the UK is going to get um, the people from Cyprus to think long and hard about their next move. And I really, really wish that the next move is going to be pro-Cyprus for once and not pro-Russia. Thanks, Ben. You've just done a superlative job at showing how corruption is, it's, as uh, that quote, famous quote goes, it's both the enemy of development and good governance. Yeah, please do check out the main account for updates on uh, on on interviews we've got coming up. So uh, just before I go, could um, uh, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Obviously, we are yet to see uh, uh, the offensive, which is uh, has been widely talked about. But uh, I should just um, 
remind uh, everyone if you could not post about ukrainian troop movements that that that's uh that would be much appreciated thank you so we broadcast of course at 1800 utc or totally weekly we're a spotify and apple podcast which broadcasts live as a twitter space please do check out you know our podcast on spotify and apple because uh we've got quite a series built up at the moment Feel free to DM the main account if you have any questions, criticisms, or, or corrections. All are welcome. So, have a good week, everybody. Ukraine's fire of freedom burns ever brighter. Slava Ukraini. Всім добрий вечір. Всі ми тут. On behalf of the brave. On behalf of our warriors, on behalf of the brave, wings of freedom. Shalom, Ukraine.